0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Nicholas Grossman, political science professor at the University of Illinois and senior editor of ARC Digital. And we're going to begin today's discussion with masking. This week, the administration extended the timetable for when masks would be required on uh, public transportation. And suddenly, a federal district judge in Florida issued a ruling saying it cannot stand. And so she issued a, a nationwide injunction and suddenly everywhere all at once. Everybody was taking off their masks on airplanes and trains and buses and subways and so forth. But now the administration says they're going to contest this. They are going to challenge it. It was very unclear at first. Damon, I'm going to start with you. It looked like for a few minutes there this week that the administration was almost looking for an excuse to just let this lapse and that they weren't going to challenge this newly appointed judge under the Trump administration, should be said. Um, but then now they are. So things are thrown into confusion once more.
1: Yeah, I I don't have a firm sense of how long this process is likely to take. Uh I guess it it'll depend on the courts to some degree till we get a, a, a more a uh, firm ruling on this, but I, I think it's still possible that the Biden administration is sort of going through the motions here, uh, feeling like it needs to do due diligence because the the ruling from the judge did not appear to be an especially uh, uh, thoughtful one, in my opinion. It was it was one of these things where I, I thought, well, that
0: looks sort of arbitrary, <laughs> but then again, are I, you referring to her dis discussion of the word sanitize? <laughs> sure, <laughs> that went on. On for pages and pages. Yeah,
1: I don't know where a lot of that comes from. I mean, uh, you know, not to be too uh, prejudicial about it, but I got an email a little while ago from the Claremont Institute crowing about how this judge took part in one of their conferences a few years ago, and they were sort of attaching themselves to her and trying to, to say, see, look how influential we are, this Trump judge. Uh, my attitude is I don't take the, the ruling that seriously. I mean it could be the Biden people sort of would like this to just go away, uh, given that it it divides the democratic caucus and uh you know it's divided in in the populace you know roughly equally i think about 50-50 in favor and against the mandates on travel so you know in the end they might think well we would like this to kind of disappear but the the reality is this is such a a bad ruling it could have implications later for the capacity of the CDC and other federal agencies to make regulations for the sake of the public good in a pandemic so they have to fight the fight. I do think that this is, as I just indicated, a pretty divided uh, issue for the Democrats and for Americans in general. I mean, just on March 15th, the Senate voted 57 to 40. That included uh, all Republicans except for Mitt Romney, and then eight Democrats joined together to get rid of the uh, travel mask mandate Uh, in our day and age that that counts as a sweeping bipartisan consensus. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know it really isn't in, in, you know, more historic senses where you would get more. And even lately, when it comes to, you know, declarations about the war uh, in Ukraine and Russia and so forth, we still get close to unanimity or even unanimous votes. But still, 57 with eight Democrats included isn't bad. And I think that the main reason why it didn't go beyond that is because Nancy Pelosi knows that it would divide her caucus in the House, and she'd rather not force her members to take that position. So it probably wouldn't have gone anywhere. Biden claimed he would veto it if it did come to his desk, but he probably was hoping it wouldn't, maybe even picked up the phone and asked Nancy Pelosi to keep it where it was. So I, I think in the end, the Biden administration uh, doesn't mind all that much that that this judge has sort of taken this out of the political realm for a little while, and we'll see how it gets resolved anecdotally, my wife just traveled on a plane today. She said roughly 50% of the plane people had masks on, and that kind of fits the data, around 50%. Um, I'm going to be traveling in about a month on a plane. I'm against the mandate by this point. I'm glad that it was struck down, although the reasoning didn't seem very sound to me. I don't really approve of having one. But I will voluntarily wear a mask on a plane when I travel. Why? Well, because I want to minimize the risk that I'm going to get sick on my trip or when I first come back. But whether it needs to be imposed by the government, uh, I'm not really convinced of it by this point. Everybody I know, and I know a lot who have COVID right now, every single one of them, are vaxxed and boosted and have pretty mild cases. No one has a serious one. Uh, If we're going to learn to live with this as an endemic issue rather than a pandemic one, we have to get used to making these decisions on our own.
0: Okay. Um, Nick Grossman, uh, first of all, nice to have you. So some people say that um, the administration has to challenge this because what's at stake is the precedent that this sets. The, this ruling says that the CDC does not have the authority to impose something like a nationwide mask requirement and that this would hamstring the CDC going into the future when next time we have a public health emergency. But I don't find that persuasive since this is just the ruling of one district court judge. It could be challenged later on. It wouldn't have that much precedential value. It's not as if the Supreme Court ruled. But the other thing that I would like to hear you on is in order for the CDC and other public health authorities to have trust, uh, to, to maintain the trust of people, they have to be seen to be making reasonable rules. And arguably this rule was so flouted and was so kind of ridiculous in its enforcement that it didn't meet that test. Please wear your mask at all times, except when you're actively eating and drinking. Uh, so what what do you think about that problem, that the, the rule itself was um, not clear and, and mostly flouted? So first, thank you
2: for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, and on masks themselves, I don't have really strong opinions. Um, I also thought that the policy of everybody take off your mask to eat and drink and breathe into this closed space a lot and then put your mask back on was uh, probably useless or uh, at least a, a very low value. And clearly, people a lot of people weren't following it. Um, so it's not that the policy itself, I thought, was necessarily good, um, although I do think people maybe overdid it in terms of turning it into a culture war symbol. But the ruling itself, I think, is a, a bigger deal in that um, not only was this an example of a... Judge claiming that the administration does not have a power to do something that uh, the statute pretty clearly looks like it does and had to torture language, especially about that word sanitation, uh, to say that the CDC can't issue regulations to reduce the spread of deadly disease across state lines unless those regulations involve physically cleaning things, uh, which sort of makes no sense. And.
0: Um, I know, it was ridiculous. So
2: to to have that as a precedent, I think the Biden administration is in a bit of a jam because whether they want to implement the policy or not, and people weren't really following it, um, at least enough people that it was making it that the virus, if people had it, would get into the air anyway, um, that they almost have to because it has to be overturned by some other judge higher up because otherwise it's established that then the CDC doesn't have this power. And it's actually part of a longer concerning trend of various federal judges short of the Supreme Court issuing nationwide injunctions that throw national policy into chaos. There was uh, judges that stopped Obama's immigration policy in 2014. Um, There were multiple injunctions that stopped Trump's uh, travel ban, uh, also immigration policy um, in 2017, 2018. Um, And now there's this one. And that's the sort of thing for legislatures, for executive branch agencies to make, not for the judiciary. So I agree about the CDC rules, but If you actually look up some of these health recommendations, there are all sorts that people don't follow things about how you're not supposed to have more than I think it's like two alcoholic beverages in any 24 hour period for example, or that five alcoholic or six alcoholic beverages in the space of one week is binge drinking and you shouldn't do it. I think it is important for them to have credibility, of course, but also that it is somewhat useful to have people who are saying, this is what the maximum caution is. This is what we, the people recommending maximum caution, would say you should do. And then a decision for the public and for politicians to say, OK, we're going to balance that against other considerations, other risks. And we decide, you know, say not to follow it or not to make it a enforced policy but i don't think they can let it slide because the separation powers questions are too big.
0: This issue of nationwide injunctions is controversial and i will put in the show notes a report that was requested from the congressional research service about this very thing. Linda, let me let me turn to you further on this CDC. Leaving aside this mask mandate in particular, they haven't necessarily been Agile in dealing with the challenges of this this pandemic. For example, we have known since basically the end of twenty twenty that the virus is not picked up on surfaces. Where was the CDC on this? What do you think?
3: Well, look, I think there is a problem uh, with the CDC. I think that two two problems. We did have a novel virus, one that nobody knew anything about. At first, no one knew exactly how it was spread. It was presumed that it was airborne, but we weren't 100% sure. We weren't sure whether or not droplets of virus lived on services, etc. So I think being cautious was wise. Uh, The problem is there's a difference between saying we don't know Everything we need to know, and therefore we're going to be cautious, and we're going to make recommendations that err on the uh, on the side of being super safe, and putting in place rules and telling employers, for example, and the whole transportation system that we're going to follow certain rules. And I think the problem is really one uh, in part of Congress's making. You know, it's it's not hundred percent clear what authority the CDC does have in this area. And I think one of the problems for the administration going forward is that no matter how it uh, ends up turning out, they appeal this decision. If the decision continues to be upheld all the way to the Supreme Court, we basically then said that the CDC does not have authority, to make these rules across state lines. Uh, it throws it back on Congress to decide whether the CDC or some other agency does. And all of this, you know, seems more benign right now because death rates have fallen, but we're still losing in the neighborhood of three to 400 people every single day dying from uh, this virus. It has not totally disappeared. And yes, it is mostly... A disease now of the unvaccinated, but uh, that's still a fair amount of people to die. and uh, I worry that being so quick to shoot down rules and recommendations and not to have anything in place to um, to mitigate against it uh, is not necessarily uh, the best thing, you know for future problems. We don't know what the next variant is going to be that comes down the pike. It, ha- it it seems as if what's happening to the virus is that the new variants are more easily contracted, but that the illness is less. And part of that is because people are vaccinated, but it may also be that the virus itself is, is weakening in terms of the, the kinds of damage it can do to the system. But you sort of wish... That the the Biden administration had been on top of all of this, that it hadn't come to this, that they might have been willing to look at at relaxing some of the rules. I mean, I think the rules that I've talked about it before on this on the program, that the rules with respect to airplanes, which are so stringent and which people seem to like, according to stuff I've read by our colleague, Bill Galston. Airplanes are one of the more safe places to be if you've got to be crowded together because of the nature of the air filtration system, which brings in constant flows of fresh air. It goes through filters, um, The even the recirculated air, which is about half the air in the cabin, uh, is uh, f- uh, filtered through. Uh, HEPA filters, which can remove most of the virus. So, you know, there is a difference between being in a crowded terminal, which is probably more dangerous than being in an airplane. So there's no room for subtlety in any of this. And the government has not been adept uh, at dealing with these variances.
0: In just a minute, we're going to have Bill Galston tell us why the government is not more adept. But before we do that, we just have this brief message. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like having a first aid kit, but not keeping it stocked up. Most of the time, you'll probably be fine, but what if you suddenly get into a horrible accident and there's nothing in your first aid kit to help you stop the bleeding? Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafes, hotels, airports, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data, passwords, financial details, and all of those things. It doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack someone, just some cheap hardware. A smart 12-year-old could do it. Your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to $1,000 per person selling personal info on the dark web. Why use ExpressVPN? Because they create an encrypted tunnel. It's secure, and it keeps your information private. Hackers can't steal your sensitive data. It's super secure. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. It's easy to use. All you have to do is fire up the app and click one button to get protected. And it works on all devices, phones, laptops, tablets, and more, so you can stay secure on the go. You know, with the uh, waning of the pandemic, I've been traveling a lot more again for business. I have been in hotels, I've been on airplanes, I've been in airports, and it is so good to know that with ExpressVPN, I can log on to the Wi-Fi at an airport or a hotel and not worry that my personal data, including banking information, credit cards, all of that might be exposed. It's very secure. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com dot slash beg to differ. That's exp dot com slash beg to differ, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com dot slash beg to differ. Okay, Bill Galston, the um Famous uh, economist uh, Thomas Sowell said, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And uh, I want to ask you about that. I happen to personally think that this judge's ruling was really uh, kind of tortured, and I I don't think it's good law. But on the other hand, I think it was well-timed to get rid of this regulation. It was imposed uh, during a time when we did not have vaccines or therapeutics, now we do. People who are at high risk can continue, or people who, pr- who just choose to can continue to mask. But uh, but it just seems that, you know, this is an attempt to sort of create a zero risk environment. And there are trade-offs. And, and some of them are that people behave very badly on airplanes who, who don't want to put masks on and flight attendants are forced to nag customers. What do you make of the, of the trade-offs involved here?
4: Well, a lot depends on whether we're having a discussion about public opinion, about public policy, or public administration, and it's it's easy to have these threads all tangled up. So let me start off by being boringly empirical. Uh, Linda was kind enough to refer to the the sort of poll of polls analysis that I just posted on the Brookings website and sent around to all of you. And it's very interesting. The mask mandate for airplanes and trains, et cetera, is not a 50-50 issue in the minds of the American people. I'm staring at a survey that was just released yesterday showing that 56% of Americans are in favor of retaining the mandate Only 24% are opposed to retaining it, and the remaining 20% are in the mushy middle, and they don't know what they think. Intriguingly, the mandate for airplanes and trains is the only mask mandate that hasn't seen a plunge in support over the past year. You know, if you're looking at workplace masking, restaurants and bars and concerts, sporting events, movies, things of that sort, support is way down. But the only mask mandate for which support is a strong majority and has not wavered in the past year has to do with airplanes and trains. I confess I was surprised when I sat down to look at these data, but they are what they are. And I don't think this is necessarily a political loser for the administration, which a lot of other people think it will be. That's point number one, public opinion. In the realm of public policy, the pattern since the pandemic began is that once the rate of infection begins to rise, it tends to continue to rise for quite some time. There are relatively few little blips and quite a few alarmingly large blips. The idea that we're out of the woods on this thing is, I think, premature at best. Now we get to the question of courts and administrative agencies. And here, as I'm sure everybody on the panel and most of our listeners know, there has been a longstanding effort on the part of conservative theoreticians and jurisprudence to trim back, if not eliminate outright, what is called the administrative state. And the attack through the courts on the powers of administrative agencies, including those legally attached to the executive branch, is part of that strategy. Having said that, I do not agree with the proposition that it is somehow illegitimate for courts to interpose themselves between administrative agencies and the implementation of rules for a very simple reason. The rules must be grounded in legislation. If they aren't, uh, they are what the lawyers called ultra vires, beyond the powers. And so it is for the courts to determine whether or not a specific regulation is within the ambit of the law cited as the basis for it. Who else is going to do that? It's clearly impossible to have a situation in which administrative agencies can simply declare a rule or a regulation that is unreviewable by anyone else. If Congress wants to move itself into the position of reviewing every rule and regulation, no matter how large or small, they're welcome to do so, uh, but they can't get close to accomplishing their current workflow, which is an honorific Congress doesn't deserve because the work isn't flowing. Uh, and how could they possibly do that? Only the courts can.
0: Well said, Bill. And uh, I like the orderly way your mind works. You laid it out very well. I also like that you used a new expression that I will now uh, adopt, which is jurisprudence. I think that must be a judge who objects to rough language, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, I think we 've covered the uh, the issue of masks for now we 'll see how it uh, plays out in uh, in the courts over the next few days we 're now going to turn to presidential families behaving badly. We have new information we 've had for a few weeks about uh, about Hunter Biden and uh, his various entanglements, and we have word in the last uh, week or two about Jared Kushner. Uh, launching investment fund that received a $2 billion investment from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. Nick Grossman, I'm going to turn to you first. Neither one of these is exactly uh, palatable. What should we be taking ultra-seriously here?
2: The thing we should be taking ultra-seriously is Jared Kushner and other members of the Trump administration's corruption, that doesn't mean that we should ignore something from uh, Hunter Biden or anybody else, but the comparison to them, which is often used as a sort of, you know, what about a what about Hunter almost as a way to argue that two wrongs make a right or I guess two wrongs make an OK or make a don't worry about it, um, that it's useful in the comparison because uh, Hunter, if. He has um, some degree of sleaziness that kind of reminds me of Roger Clinton or maybe some other like uh, sleazy presidential relatives that has maybe traded on the family name. And that's something that's a a conflict of interest. It's worth investigating, perhaps. You know, it's a reasonable uh, reason to look into it. But also in the process of looking into it, it's clear that he never held any government position. He didn't change any government policy as a result of it. And Kushner puts us into sharp relief of this is what it actually looks like. Of Here, he was somebody who first uh, could not pass his security clearance applications because of concerning foreign ties. And Trump gave him a top White House position anyway, which is the president's legal authority uh, to do so. They can make, give any information, any classified information to anybody at will. Uh, that's within presidential power. So it's legal, but it's really not good for the country. And the way that we saw it was not good for the country is that uh, Kushner became a prominent consumer of U.S. intelligence, of things that didn't even pertain to foreign policy he was working on, and he ran a sort of shadow foreign policy going around the State Department and the Defense Department. He had met with uh, MBS then uh, trying to rise and consolidate power, uh, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, um, and uh, met with him in advance, and he uh, Quite possibly gave him some classified U.S. intelligence because the next day after they had stayed up all night together, uh, the next day there was a big purge and a lot of Saudi arrests and consolidation of power and kind of generational turnover within Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia launched a blockade of Qatar with Kushner's backing. That was a surprise to Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and also Defense Secretary James Mattis, who then had to go to the Middle East and try to reassure a bunch of partners because the U.S. was running the anti-ISIS air campaign, out of a base in Qatar, which then, thanks to Kushner, the U.S. was now supporting a blockade for. And then, um, after not too long, there was a big investment from a Qatari company tied to the government that bailed out Jared Kushner's terrible real estate investment in 666 Fifth Avenue, and then guess what? The U.S. backs off with the cutter crisis. US also, uh, in part thanks to Kushner, um, gave some, uh, transferred some nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia that went around Congress that might not be totally legal. And now uh, also helped cover up uh, MBS's murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist. And now we have, um, six months after he's out of office, this $2 billion payment, which is not only a um, just giving it to Kushner uh, in general already pretty shady, but it is over objections of the Saudi financial advisors who say that Jared Kushner is not a good investment because he's a terrible businessman. He hasn't made money and he has what his kind of big claim to fame was being born to a rich father and marrying a rich guy's daughter and then, you know, subsequent president's daughter. And now he is getting an unusually high payment out of this, a management fee out of it, um, that it would be higher than a lot of firms with people who have successfully uh, made money, um, successfully proven to be good investors, where Kushner himself is going to pocket $25 million out of that $2 billion investment. And that's just going right to him. And this is, I don't know how much it is a thank you for past services rendered, or it is a down payment on the possibility that he'll get back into power and future services rendered. But this is some of the biggest corruption that I think we've seen in U.S. history. I'm trying to think of a a good analog. And there isn't really one of a president putting his neophyte corrupt son-in-law into such a senior position, who then uses his position to make money for himself. I remember writing in 2016 of concerns about the Clinton Foundation, about the charity, that if Hillary was going to win, that there shouldn't be some private interest of the president that foreign actors can give money to, even though it's a charity and even though it has a record of having done some good work. That still, it would be something where then, oh, maybe if you give money to the charity, then there's pressure to talk to, uh, you know, then you get a meeting with the president, possible uh, influence peddling, other problems like that. And that was a, I still think, a reasonable concern. And now we see the real thing at much bigger scale. And I don't know if it is so many things going out of the war and COVID and all the other problems, uh, or if it is that there's so much corruption from the Trump administration, or if people are just kind of fed up with it or exhausted by it, but it is not getting nearly att- the attention that it deserves. I don't know if I've ever seen something so corrupt, and it changed U.S. policy in real detrimental ways. Part of the reason why U.S. policy is in trouble with Iran now is because Kushner took bribes to change it.
0: All right. Damon Linker, that's a very damning <laughs> uh, indictment. And I, I guess you know what's striking to me is just the incredible bad faith that you see on both sides where there is a tremendous amount of interest in every detail of Hunter Biden's wrongdoing. And by the way, there was, it seems like there was plenty on the part of right-wing websites. Actually, you haven't seen that much about Kushner from the left because they've been preoccupied with other things. But I remember being concerned about the Clinton Foundation too. And Nicholas makes an excellent point that there at least seems to, used to have been a standard about these things that's gone by the wayside what do you think
1: oh absolutely and uh nick did a fabulous job he would be a very good prosecutor yes he, uh, <laughs> that was a pretty he
0: chose the wrong field nick Rosman. <laughs> yeah
1: that was a pretty compelling uh, bill of indictment there and and i i fully endorse it you know it, it, Hunter Biden seems like a, a bit of a creep. He's, he's been involved in some nasty stuff. He, he appears to have tried to use his, his family name, his father's position as vice president. Uh, and then the potential of him becoming president to, to secure deals for himself, make money, uh, influence pedal to, uh, aggrandize himself, uh, in ways that are pretty sleazy but... It simply does not compare. It's, I think, probably worse than, you know, Billy Carter, Jimmy Carter's, uh, you know, peanut farming brother, and the kind of scandals that swirled around him. I mean, how naive, how innocent that seems to us now, <laughs> that there were like, congressional investigations of that. Uh, and, and, you know, Jimmy Carter himself had to divest from his own family's uh, connections to the farming business. It's, it's so innocent compared to to what we're describing now or what Nick laid out there.
0: Though, by the way, it was the post-Watergate morality at the time, so people were highly sensitive.
1: Yes, absolutely. And there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that the, the scale of corruption now is so much vaster that, uh, you know, one-off oh, almost wishes we could will ourselves back to such innocent times compared to that.
0: Right. I would just interject, though, Damon, because you have said it, but I, I want to underline. I don't want to be seen to be downplaying Hunter Biden's potential corruption because uh, the stories that have come out, um, Yahoo News, for example, and other places, and some of the things that have been revealed uh, by Republicans on the Hill suggest that he was being used by a possible Chinese agent of influence, that there was a lot of money, millions of dollars were changing hands. So it wasn't it wasn't small beer. I just want to say that.
1: No, it, it. Well, we don't. The honest truth is, we don't really know. And right. it is also true that we, I, I, I think, journalists have sort of been soft peddling the story because of how it, it originally broke. Uh, in right, the, we're going to get to couple, that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah took a yeah. couple a couple of months before the last election and Giuliani and a briefcase or a the computer in <laughs> yeah. a store, laptop, laptop left yeah. in a place. Yeah. It, it was just it. It came up in a way that uh, that made it really appear like there was some kind of dirty trick going on here and I think the media probably overreacted uh, after feeling like it got played uh, in the in the month before the 2016 election with uh, with stories about uh, about emails being discovered that actually had already been looked at and the FBI investigation of Hillary Clinton that contributed to Trump winning so the media kind of lurched to the other direction and effectively Effectively put a cordon around uh, the Hunter Biden story, and it could be big. And you know, for all we know, if if someone does unearth that Joe Biden himself was aware of certain things, let alone directing them in some way, using his own influence and name to help his son or himself financially, that would be a huge scandal, and and should rightfully be looked into. There's no evidence of it yet. And so it is it is a, a somewhat bizarre situation. We're all in where we're like, uh, you know, someone I, I quote from a lot here on the podcast, Matt Iglesias, had a nice he has nice quips. So I like quoting his quips here where he said something uh, to the effect of if you're a single issue voter and what matters to you is the corruption of presidential children, then you should absolutely have voted for Joe Biden in the last election because the competition. The petition was still, no matter how bad the Hunter Biden story is or could be, it's almost inconceivable that it rivals the story of Jared Kushner. Uh so uh, you know th- that's that's where we are it's sad that uh you know compared to the to the standards of uh, uh Billy Carter we've now come to this where we have b- we have both the Biden family embroiled in something that seems worse than that and then of course the whole Trump family story which is uh kind of magnitude larger than that still
0: Right, uh, I think that it would it be only fair to equalize things that uh, President Biden appoint his son Hunter to some high White House post.
1: <laughs> just, for- just just ask him to 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 make to make peace in the Middle East. That's
0: all. Yeah. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, we'll have more about this in just a moment after this short message. I wish this bag under my eye would just go away. If that sounds like you every morning, you are not alone. Bags and puffiness under the eyes are a problem for millions of American men and women. Until now. Introducing the new Genucel Serum with Plant Stem Cell Technology from Chamonix. Susan from New Jersey wrote, I've been using Genucel for a couple of months. The puffiness around my eyes is gone. Even the crow's feet and small lines have disappeared and haven't come back. I love your product. I use it under my eyes, around my cheekbones, and on my eyelids. Not only Susan, folks, I use it and I love it. And with its instant effects, you'll see results in the first 12 hours, guaranteed or your money back. During the GenuCell Mother's Day sale, save up to 50% on all GenuCell products at GenuCell.com now. Go to GenuCell.com slash beg to differ. Order today and Chamonix will include a surprise luxury gift absolutely free. com slash beg to differ. One more time, that's com slash beg to differ. All right, Linda, let's get into a little bit of the story around Hunter Biden's laptop, because this has been the source of certain amount of hand-wringing on the part of some people saying the press was uh, carrying water for the Bidens by failing to follow up on this story when it broke. And this shows the corruption of the so-called MSM, the mainstream media, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you think about it, but I don't think that it's really, it illustrates that problem. No doubt there were some people who were motivated that way. But as, as I recall the story, it emerged a little less than three weeks before the election. It was, you know, a laptop left at a, at a repair shop, but person who brought it to the FBI's attention was none other than Rudy Giuliani, who had just returned from trying to scare up dirt about Hunter Biden from, of all places, Ukraine. And there were many other aspects of the way this thing broke that would have been enough to make ordinarily skeptical person say, hmm, this needs a little more
3: checking. What do you think? Well, first of all, I think the press is right to be wary of October surprises. And this was an October surprise in the waning days of the election. The provenance of this laptop was very dicey. In fact, what was, I guess, the actual laptop was eventually turned over to the FBI, but what was being sort of passed around was a much copied hard disk, supposedly. And it wasn't just evidence of corruption, financial kind of possibility of corruption with Burisma and the Chinese and other entities. There was also sex involved. There were supposedly dirty pictures, other kinds of things of titillating value. And it's the kind of thing that at the ending days of an election, particularly when you don't know where this material came from, the fact that it's given to you on a hard drive that's been copied doesn't mean that it Hasn't been downloaded in a hacking operation and having gone through the 2016 election when, in fact, the Russians were hacking into the DNC and getting emails and then, you know, passing them on, you know, wasn't, I think, unreasonable for people in the press to be skeptical. Now we're past that the press has had an opportunity. The New York Times has, in fact, uh, spent time analyzing the material. There are stories being written about it. So I- I'm And not, there is a federal investigation. Right. I think one of the big differences though, and I think Nick is right to point this out, is that the kinds of things that Hunter Biden is being charged with are disgusting. They're sleazy, if true. He clearly was, I think- indisputably, making money off his dad's name and position, as was Joe Biden's brother, all of that is, is really unseemly. But it's not of the scale in which we're talking about Jared Kushner, where Jared Kushner is not just, you know, getting $2 million uh, invested with him, making money off it. He is shaping American foreign policy. And Biden was not doing that. This was not part of a big overarching scheme to change the direction of American foreign policy as there was with Kushner. So I think that makes it in and of itself more dangerous. Sadly, it makes it less sexy to the kind of people who you know, want to watch detective shows on, on uh, reality TV trying to dissect this, these kinds of stories. It's not as sexy a story as the Hunter Biden uh, story is, but it's a far more serious one. Bill Galston, one of the things that
0: we've learned about the Kushner deal with the Saudis is that his new equity firm had no American investors at all. And This is one of the things that the firm that was uh, assigned to do due diligence uh, pointed out to the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund that they would be the biggest investor and the only, and and that there were no Americans who were involved, and that the um, the pitch apparently um, that that the that Kushner was using to attract investment wasn't his expertise in investing money or you know anything along those lines and have a, a background in finance at all he's a son of a real estate mogul and uh, but it was all about his contacts and uh, and how he could uh, grease the skids for people through knowing the right people i mean kind of just blatant uh, attempting to sell influence
4: well it's hard to disagree with what you said it's hard to disagree With what Nick said, there's an old joke that seems to me to apply to Kushner. Uh, When the question is posed, how can you make a small fortune? The answer is start with a big one. Kushner is not only totally without experience in the world of finance, but he's also, even though he's the son of a real estate mogul, he doesn't seem to be very good at real estate either. You know, Nick referred to the Park Avenue fiasco. That was a big one, right? That That could have come close to bringing down the entire family firm if it hadn't been refinanced at what I would call sweetheart rates under very gentle conditions by a foreign entity. Having said that, I'm scratching my head as to what more I can add (laughs) to what has already been said. Jared Kushner is a privileged young man who is abusing his privilege. Hunter Biden is obviously a troubled young man. Unfortunately, much of the money that he has received has gone up his nose or for other purposes. You know, I am more struck by the family tragedy for the Bidens when, to put it bluntly, the good son dies tragically, leaving the bad one in the spotlight. How do the parents feel about this, really feel as opposed to what they'll say in public? You know, it's the human dimension of this that particularly strikes me. And aside from that, everything that needs to be said about this has already been said.
0: All right. Thank you for that. And in just a minute, we will return with our next topic. If you're like me, you share your home, not just with humans, but with animal friends and While they're wonderful companions, they also have odors, dander, hair. Let me talk to you about Eden Pure Thunderstorm Air Purifiers. Their proven oxy technology quickly destroys viruses, odors, mold, and more. It cleans the air of allergy-causing particles so you can breathe easy again, and it freshens up your home. It gets rid of any odor, like litter boxes, trash cans, cigarette smoke, even dirty diapers and cooking smells. With over 200,000 thunderstorms sold, you know it works. You never have to breathe dirty air again. And there are no filters to buy. And it takes up no floor space. You just plug this unit into the wall. It's almost silent, so it's great for use in any room, really. You can use it in your bedroom, we do. And we also have one in the room where the cat's litter box is. Plus, all the units come with a six-foot USB cord. They are compact, great for traveling. You can use it in hotel rooms or wherever you might be going. So go to EdenPureDeals.com, enter the discount code MONA3 to save $200. That's Three thunderstorm air purifiers for under $200. Shipping is free. All right, our third topic I want to just play a clip from our friend James Carville because he has advice for Democrats.
4: Problem is, they are are a weird political party. They need to be branded as such. These 26 QAnon people. All right. That's not that's not necessarily the extreme. I mean, these are people that talk about testicle tanning. These are people that like go to Hungary for conferences. These are not normal. By and large, a large part of the Republican Party is just out and out weird. And when you have Moscow Mitch saying we need more sane people, that means you got a lot of really crazy people. Look at the the clip when. Peter Navarro, that guy was a serious person in the White House. You're telling me that he's a normal human being? No. (laughs) And he's not even among the worst.
0: (laughs) So James, I think, has pretty unerring instincts. Linda, I'm going to come to you first on this one. The Democrats need to be able to say something. I mean, the fact is they are constantly being impaled by Republicans on the, on their most nutty extremists, right? And, uh, you know, the Republicans are always saying that all Democrats are for defund the police and so on. And that's not true. But, uh, but they don't seem to be able to turn the tables and, and make Republicans, uh, you know, account for and, and responsible for their own you know, nutty extremists.
3: And and the Republicans are, of course, much crazier. Well, and I think when uh, James Carville talks about weird, um, I listen to him. <laughs> he knows a weird person when he sees one. Uh, he's He's got pretty good uh, instincts in that arena. Look, I don't think the Democrats have a, a very uh, winning uh, platform to run on this time. Uh, unfortunately uh, for President Biden, the economy is not as bad as people think it is, but it's you know bad when you go and it costs you so much to fill up your tank and your groceries are costing a lot more. Inflation is really killing them. I think the culture war issues hurt the Democrats. There are just a lot of things going against the Democrats. Well, the Republicans are weird. They are pushing weird things. And they have some very strange people out there. It isn't just the Marjorie Taylor Greens and, and um, uh, Lauren Boebert from Colorado. They've got Madison Cawthorn talking about orgies and, and drug uh, parties uh, among senators and having to take that back. Uh, they've got uh, a very strange array of people and they're pushing some very strange things as well. I mean, the whole, all during the the COVID uh, pandemic, the pushing of, you know, horse dewormers and and that kind of nonsense. President uh, Trump himself suggesting ingesting bleach or putting ultraviolet uh, lights inside our organs, those kinds of things. So I I think, um, I, I think, James is not wrong, and I think if if they can poke fun, if they can make getting people to laugh at politicians is a very effective technique uh, in in combating uh, bad ideas. And so, if the Democrats can do that, uh, I think it might might be good to listen to James Carville on this one. Okay, so uh, Nick Grossman, mockery, good idea. Well,
2: sure. I mean, I like mockery and I think it has you know, political value. Uh, I agree that the, you know, obviously a lot of the Republicans are weird. And I also think that some of them have, have taken a very serious turn against U.S. constitutional democracy and that there should be some way. I mean, I'm not a, a campaign advisor. There should be some way to get some uh, political success from that. I mean, there's so much evidence for it. Uh, in covering up uh, January 6th or in supporting Trump's lies about the election or anything else about it. Um, As a political strategy, I wonder, though, if it can work. And the reason why is because there's a asymmetry in American politics that I, I don't fully understand. I'm not sure what to do about, but where the Democrats tend to run against and liberals argue against senior Republican politicians there, it's uh, Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell and the uh, conservative justices on the Supreme Court, that that's where they really direct their ire, or maybe it's some institutions like that, whereas Republicans run against the left, broadly defined, and they have done quite well at making – and their audience seems very receptive to making it where – Anything that anybody that is vaguely on the left, whether it would be a politician or a media figure or a university professor uh, or some random liberal on TikTok, and this becomes somehow a problem for the Democratic Party, whereas the Democrats have a lot of trouble getting Republicans to even be held responsible for their own senior leaders that they're still supporting. And something uh, about this where I wonder if uh, Carville's recommendation is almost saying, hey, Democrats, do what Republicans are doing. And I don't know if that will or won't work, in part because something that will motivate Republican voters who are angry at the left might not uh, motivate Democratic voters who might not really care about some random conservative in some random place.
0: Bill Galston. so what Democrats would be asking voters to care about is, one, their sort of nuttiness, and two, their threat to the republic. Unfortunately, it just does not seem to be the case that voters, average voters, are going to go to the polls and pull the lever for one party or another based on their judgments about who's more of a threat to the health of democracy. They, They will vote, though, on gas prices.
4: James is a very shrewd political observer. But on this one, I have to part company with him. It drives voters crazy when you're talking about things they don't care about and trying to persuade them that they ought to care about the things that you care about because it would be useful if they cared about them. It is simply not going to work. It might conceivably have an impact when everything else is tranquil, when there are no big issues on the minds of the voters, but that is simply not the case right now and it is a desperate effort to change the subject i don't think it will work just one more thing quickly extreme is not the same as weird and the republicans are attacking the left on the grounds that their proposals are extreme defund the police abolish ice open borders etc cetera, etc cetera. and so they are simply not interchangeable they are not political equivalents and that is another reason why i am extremely skeptical that following james's advice will lead to a good result for democrats
0: damon this week though we did see the speech by a member of the michigan senate go viral her name is mallory McMorrow, and she responded to an attack by one of the other uh, members of the michigan senate accusing mcmarrow of of encouraging grooming of children, uh, one of the more disgusting accusations that's being thrown around by the right these days for anybody who poses their view of things. She gave a rip-roaring speech that has a lot of people saying, this is how Democrats can respond to the culture wars. What do you think?
1: Well, I... I- you know i'm eager to see it tried and then see what the results are i guess i mean i i have had my assumptions about what works and doesn't work in american politics subverted and turned upside down so many times since 2016 that i sort of don't trust my judgment as much as i used to i mean the things that trump said and got away with and and then the acts that that i think you noted a few minutes ago injecting bleach i mean it's like the, the, that was the, linda yeah it yeah, was yeah. linda like i I mean, the list is so long, you know, and everyone listening to this is well aware of what they are. All the way down to Tucker Carlson being the leading uh, leading person on American uh, cable news every single night of the week, and he has a special about testicle tanning and like this is nice and
0: toasty warm
1: yeah it's just and the (sighs) video that went with it and i'm sure everyone has seen a glimpse of online it's it's just so bizarre that i would have expected like no party that embraces this kind of stuff could get more than 10 percent of the vote but you know then again a lot of this comes out of of a kind of uh a a kind of culture of a, a kind of Trash television, and uh, and it it seems to appeal to a large enough portion of the country, plus doesn't repel a large enough different portion of the country that the Republicans are still able to cobble together, if not majorities, then sometimes pluralities. And even if not pluralities, they're able to put that together with uh, counter-majoritarian aspects of of our institutions to somehow remain competitive i mean it's there is something kind of goofy about the fact and and frankly for a lot of democrats very unfair about the fact that democrats always seem to be embroiled in these debates about popularism we said this little thing and now people won't vote for us anymore we have to moderate and adjust and, and say exactly the right thing or we won't win and always always second guessing their messaging whereas republicans appear to say anything they damn well please and don't get punished for it so Uh, Yeah, sure. Let's follow Carville and and the Michigan speech and and what people are proposing uh, as different strategies and see what works, I would expect, given what we're seeing, that Republicans should pay a price for some of the stuff they're pulling around the country. But uh, so far, they haven't seemed to. And I I guess that means I'm a little skeptical that we'll start to now, but it sure would be nice.
0: Wow. At least vis-a-vis the midterms uh, they can they, they ought to be creative because they're heading for a real drubbing. Yeah. all right, and with that, we will turn to our highlight and low light of the week. But before we do that, we just have this brief message: It is spring, and that means outdoor grilling, but you know what? you don't even have to grill outdoors. We have these Omaha steaks, the actually the small fillets. In our freezer, I defrosted them and I made them on our cast iron skillet. And I have to tell you, they were melt in your mouth tender. They were so wonderful. And yes, it's great to grill outside, but when it's pouring, it's good to know you can still have your Omaha steaks even inside on your stovetop. Let Omaha Steaks make it easy to stock up on all your favorites. Visit omahasteaks.com, enter Beg to Differ into the search bar, and order the Spring Grill Pack today. You'll save over 50%. Plus, you'll get four Omaha Steak Burgers and four boneless chicken breasts free with your order. This package has it all, from the butcher-cut filet mignon to the delicious caramel apple tartlets. Omaha Steaks delivers perfection in every single bite, every single time, and they back each order with their 100% satisfaction guarantee. Visit omahasteaks.com, type keyword begged to differ in the search bar, and order today. There is a reason why Omaha Steaks have been the leader of gourmet steaks and food for over a century. No one, I mean no one, comes close to matching the flavor, tenderness, and value of Omaha Steaks. Visit omahasteaks.com, keyword, beg to differ, and order the Spring Grill Pack today. Okay, I'm going to start with Nicholas Grossman.
2: My highlight is the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which uh, I saw and I've rarely been to the movies since the pandemic started and I really like going to the movies and this one was just delightful and it also got me thinking, very entertaining, and got me thinking about Also, a bunch of serious issues, of philosophical questions about nihilism and the meaning of life and love and family. Um, And I I had a great time, and I've been thinking about it since. And as long as somebody is not, say, turned off by me describing a movie as weird, as long as a movie being weird doesn't sound bad to you, I think it sounds good. Uh, But this movie was great, and you know, put me in a great mood. My uh, my low light uh, is a argument coming from the left wing, especially from prominent figures like Noam Chomsky about the U.S. support for Ukraine in its war against Russia. And Chomsky argued that what the United States is doing is trying to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian and that the U.S. should instead be pushing for peace. And this is just a bad misunderstanding of the war that Ukraine has chosen to fight back. That is their choice. And given that there is not some option some switch the united states could flip that could make peace happen the path to peace is by supporting ukraine and not only are we not fighting to the last ukrainian in any sense the ukrainians have gotten some military success so only when they can manage to get some sort of terms that they meaning the ukrainians are willing to accept Will there be some sort of accommodation with Russia? And I don't think it's at all unreasonable for the Ukrainians to look at the rape and murder and theft and uh, all the other actions that Russia has done in their country and say that at least as long as they have a chance on the battlefield, they don't want to bow down before Russia. And so I think it'd be deeply wrong for the United States to say that they have to, and that instead it is right that the U.S. is supporting them while also making a careful effort to avoid escalation that could lead to a wider war or lead to World War III.
0: All right. Um, I will restrain myself from commenting on Noam Chomsky, who's been wrong about pretty much everything for many, many years, almost everything except free speech.
3: All right. Um, Linda Chavez. Uh, Well, speaking about Russia and and what they're doing, uh, I was actually somehow had missed this story. And the Wall Street Journal had an editorial on it about the Biden administration's plans to not include in its defense budget a money for a sea-launched nuclear cruise missile the kind of missile that would be successful for example at attacking tactical nuclear weapons should a country like russia decide uh, to use them in ukraine and i must say i've been i've given biden good marks uh, mostly on his handling of the, the war and in his aiding of Ukraine, the one area where I think he is not uh, behaved as well is in seeming to give too much deference to Putin and not doing anything that he thinks might provoke Putin into using uh, nuclear weapons. The Russians, that you know, this last week tested a new intercontinental ballistic missile. It was a MERV missile, so multiple, uh, multiple, independently targeted reentry vehicles. Uh, uh, it's something that, you know, was was very much part of our strategy uh, during the 1980s, and we have held back on on uh, some of the tests that we normally would be. Being involved in with our nuclear arsenal, uh, all of them in ways to I think you know not not make Putin paranoid. Well, this not including money for this new sea-based cruise missile uh, in the budget, while it probably was not specifically related to what's going on with Ukraine, I still think it's a bad idea because I think we may at some point end up having to have at our disposal something to deal with Russia's tactical nuclear threat.
0: Thank you. Bill Galston.
4: <laughs> well, what Linda said made me nostalgic. You know, I haven't heard acronyms like Merv <laughs> and Slickum for decades. <laughs> so. But I guess, I guess all of us of a certain age can pull out all of the old Cold War acronyms and arguments. We can just, you know, blow the dust off and repurpose them. I'm going personal for my highlight of the week. My family, son, daughter-in-law, four little grandchildren under the age of nine, all have come to visit us for 10 days for Passover. And our house may recover. It may not. But during this period, I've had the fascinating experience of getting to see my little granddaughter, age 16 months, beginning to form her first sentences. And they all have to do with transportation, in particular, transporting her from one place to another place. So She has a personal interest in, in these sentences, but, you know, get out, get up. She appears to need... No nouns in order to get her point across, which is probably a deep point about language. At any rate, it's been entertaining and heartwarming, and you know, a 76 year old man has gotten another
0: chance at love. Oh, I am so jealous. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) If any of my sons are listening. Okay.
1: Damon Linker. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Well, at my selection uh, this week uh, kind of goes along with a few of the others uh, here at the end of the show uh, r- dealing with uh, Russia and Ukraine and the war there, uh, which we hadn't uh, talked about on the show much otherwise. So that, that actually is pretty fitting. It's still uh, the major story in the world. Um, this actually is a, a, a newsletter item from a, a friend of the podcast, Tom Nichols. Uh, he writes a newsletter for the Atlantic titled peace field, as in war and peace and field put together as a word. And this is an item uh, titled Putin's Unholy War, Putin, the Patriarch and the Corruption of Orthodox Christianity. And as newsletter items often are, this one is really a a kind of personal essay, uh, more than a piece of analysis of the news. And it's very moving. It actually is a a story of, of Tom's trip to uh, the Soviet Union in the early 80s when uh, he was young and uh, how he was uh, Eastern Orthodox like uh, much of Russia and like much of Ukraine is today and his reflections on the corruptions in the church uh, under the Soviets and how that's continued to lead the church to support Putin's war in Ukraine today and it's a it's a mixture of history and current events and his own personal personal biography. And it, it really is a very nice uh, uh, reflection on the religious dimension of this conflict, which hasn't been uh, given all that much attention uh, in the news over here, partly because uh, Eastern Orthodoxy is, uh, is a, f- a pretty minority faith uh, in our country, I think. So I think not a lot of journalists understand it and its history, but uh, Tom Nichols does, and it's really a worthwhile read. It's very, very good.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that. And um, as for me, I would like to recommend a piece by my colleague at the Bulwark, Amanda Carpenter. It was about Mike Lee's role in Trump's attempted coup. As the January 6th committee has been releasing documents, uh, we've learned about the roles of um, a variety of figures. And this one is particularly painful because Mike, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, uh, the senior senator of Utah, presented himself as Mister Constitutional Conservative. He was uh, he was supposed to be super principled, son of a famous solicitor general. And what these texts show is that he was all in on. Uh, Aspects of the coup. He was he was ready. He was making phone calls, ready to pressure uh, state legislatures to submit alternate slates of delegates. He was urging for a while anyway. He was urging Mark Meadows to take the advice and make the Sidney Powell the crazy Kraken lady, the the face of of the investigations into voting fraud. On and on, and it is just just another mark of. Shame for a party that presented itself as being faithful to the Constitution. This was the exact opposite. All right, with that, I want to thank Nicholas Grossman for joining us. And I want to thank our uh, producer, Katie Cooper, and our sound engineer, Joe Armstrong. I want to thank all of our listeners and thank all of you for rating and reviewing our podcast. That gets us new listeners who are always eager to sign up. And uh, we will return next week as everyone.